Amen. Please be seated. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 once again this morning. This morning we begin our look at each of the six pieces of God's armor that we can put on for the spiritual battle that is our lives. This life we live is a battle, and we can't see a lot of it in, with our physical eyes, but it is raging. It's a spiritual batter, battle at its core. Really, everything um, owes to that which is spiritual, ultimately. And these pieces of armor that we have been given are gifts to us from God who has purchased us the victory through His Son. Christ has provided it, and we are in Him, and these come to us from God. They're God's strength. They're God's pieces of armor. It's the power of His might that we find ourselves wearing these pieces. They're worn, they're proven by Jesus, they're reliable, they're effective, because He Himself has manifested all of these features, and they are ours in Him. And through the finished work of Christ on your behalf, on our behalf, because of His ongoing love for us as our shepherd, because He's given us His Holy Spirit, we have His armor to stand against the wiles of the devil. Also, His armor to help us against the draws or the pulls of our sinful flesh, and also against the malicious onslaught of the world. So we come to Ephesians 6, looking at these six different pieces, but I will read verse 10 to verse 20 to acquaint ourselves again with this magnificent uh, treasure trove of verses that we have before us in this book. Let's hear now as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Please bow together with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are very, very grateful for your special care through your spirit and because of the work of our Savior. We acknowledge the truth of your word, in our need of this armor that you supply. Please impress all of us again with the power and the relevance of your holy word. Please give us a focus as we sit under your holy word together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Just one key verse for us to remember today and to contemplate together. Verse 14, the first piece of that spiritual armor that God has given to us in Christ. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. That's the first piece of armor we want to consider this morning together. You know, one of the most intense and moving interactions in history has to be when Pilate met Jesus. Pontius Pilate, this Roman ruler, the highest representative of human authority in that region at that time in Judea. Pilate was educated at the highest level of the empire. He had read many books, had heard many teachers, many philosophers, studied law. He was an educated man, more so than most people in his day. Yet there he was, governing and struggling to understand these Jewish people in this Jewish state with this temple and all that was stirring, especially during the Passover. He was perpetually pressured by the religious leaders and the masses. Now he had to deal with Jesus, this Jesus that people were saying was causing insurrection, stirring up things. And as far as Pilate was concerned, this kind of word could not get back to Caesar, that he was having trouble maintaining peace. Caesar would not tolerate failure. So Pilate had to make the right choice about Jesus in Judea. And after a series of mock trials and interactions and interrogations, finally Jesus stands before Pilate, the one person who at that time, humanly speaking, had the power to call everything off. It says in John 18, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And you can just sense the exasperation of Pilate, who had much studying under his belt. And here he says, truth, what is the truth? Now, we see in Pilate what happens when you don't have a bearing on the truth. Now, he could see before him that Jesus had not done anything worth dying for or, or being uh, guilty of to die, really couldn't find anything with him. So he knew that was true, but because he wasn't guided by a more foundational truth, he wavered. Pilate says, what is truth to Jesus? And then after he said that, it continues in John, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you see a person without truth wavers like this? So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's probably thinking they would. But instead, they cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. For all his education and political savvy, Pilate did not know essential truth. His lack of roundedness in the truth caused him to make many bad decisions over his career. A number of them led to atrocities. 
Pilate is a display of what happens when you are a leader who does not know truth. But for everybody, at a lesser level as far as impact, but an important level, no doubt, this is what happens to us when we're not grounded in the truth. One who does not know the truth, for that person, there's no way to stand against evil ultimately. In fact, you end up becoming an agent of evil. For us, coming to this simple piece of the armor, says in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Brothers and sisters, truth is essential to the Christian life and our stand against evil. Essential. It is a central feature of everything. We have to have it. We have to wear this belt of truth. Now, as we think of Paul's instruction here, we want to gather truth from the perspective he is presenting it throughout the book we've been studying. And right now, he's given us a metaphor of armor, armor pieces that represent the various ways Christians have to be prepared or ready for their spiritual battle, the battle against primarily the devil, but the vestiges of the devil that we find in ourselves and our sinful flesh and also in the world, lined up against him, those who are not in Christ. So this is about readiness to withstand, to stand up in the face of it and still Remain in faith, having faith in Christ, recognizing Christ. This is what he's preparing the reader for, for us. Now back to the metaphor of the armor. Think, if you will, uh, you know, to the Christmas pageant when the Roman soldiers come down, stomping through, and just think of that Roman armament, because that's no doubt what Paul has in mind. We're not King Arthur's armor. It's not that. It's the Roman soldier armament. Remember, Paul himself may have been chained to a Roman soldier. We know he was at times, but even maybe right then when he was coming up with this picture. So as you think of the pieces of armor, the belt is central to it all. We might not think this way. Um, We wear belts today, yes, to hold our pants up, but also for style points. This was completely useful for this uniform or this armament that a Roman soldier would wear. You could say it was most important because nothing else would hold together or work right, at least not efficiently like a Roman soldier was supposed to uh, be equipped. It wouldn't work that well without the belt. It wouldn't work at all in most cases. Think of the breastplate, the big metal piece that goes over their chest and their, their vital organs. That would flap up this way if there's not something holding it down below the midsection where the belt is. The belt was at least four to five, sometimes six inches wide, and it was made of thick rawhide-type leather, and it was a half-inch thick, and it wrapped around the whole waist. And it was meant to hold down the front of the breastplate tight to the body so you can move, wield a sword, and, and move quickly agile, with agility. Then also, it had on it some holders, like for a sword or a dagger. Other equipment might hang from it. So it served that purpose as well for your weapon. It also served another purpose. You wore a tunic underneath that was the undergarment, a thick undergarment you'd wear under the armor. And so it would be like a a kilt or a a skirt, if you will. And so by the belt being thick like this, it would also have hanging off the front, usually long leather straps that would lay on on the lap, essentially. And it would cover that whole region, but it would be movable. And it would also allow your tunic to lay close against your thighs so when you ran or moved quickly, it wouldn't be distracting with the tunic moving all around or tangling up. It would stay flat against you so that you can run forward, that you could uh, move side to side. And it had a very useful purpose. Uh, The belt was very important. It was a piece that many would hang up in their homes after as 
kind of the piece that reminded them of their military career. Sometimes there would be medals put on it um, that had engravings from the Caesar that you served under or a commander, and it would tell a bit of a story of the person. So a belt was central to everything you wore. So when we start to talk about the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, these things all have dependence upon truth at the center. That's what is meant to be depicted, and this is probably why he mentions it first. You know, when you think of armor, that's not the first thing you think of as being glamorous, the belt, but it's of of utmost importance. So we come to verse 14 with this picture, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, cinch it up. And here's the thing, when you're heading into battle, if you're in a long march, I mean miles and miles of marching, sometimes you could loosen it a bit to let everything breathe a little better, especially your breastplate and so forth. It just not be as, but as soon as it was looking like you were getting close to where you were going or the battle was coming, you'd cinch up the belt and make sure everything held down tight. That's the picture we have before us. Fast, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first step in our engaging in the spiritual battle adequately and efficiently is to have the belt of truth bound around us. Check if you have the belt of truth bound around you, fastened well, because we need this bound around us. Because truth is essential to the Christian life and our stand against evil. Now let's come at this passage considering how Paul has already spoken of truth. We have to ask the same question Pilate asks and find our answer from what the Apostle is giving us. Pilate asks, what is truth? How does Paul define truth? How does he display it so we understand the belt of truth? Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The word truth is aletheia, which is the most general word for truth used in the New Testament. It's actually the word Pilate uses, at least that's the word translated. He may have said veritas or some word in, in Latin, but when the writers uh, penned and described the picture, it was aletheia, that's just truth. That which is revealed, that which is disclosed. We, we are able to see something that may have been concealed to us, and now it's unconcealed. It's interesting when you look at um, just secular definitions of truth. The Encyclopedia Britannica, a popular uh, source, says this, truth is the property of sentences, assertions, beliefs, thoughts, or propositions that are said in ordinary discourse to agree with the facts or to state what is the case. I hear people saying commonly today in, in popular vernacular, if someone says something, like Christians might say amen, but people today will say in general, facts, facts. He's speaking facts now. That's facts. And they just mean to say that's truth. Uh, They judge it to be truth. They're saying that's true, what's being said. Now, what's interesting, there's a little bit of a commentary section on the electronic version of the Encyclopedia Britannica. It gives a little more nuance than the old Britannica did. It's, It's really like, it's almost like preaching at you a little bit about what it says. So you have to watch what you're reading, which is true about everything. But what it says here, I have to say, hits the nail on the head. The Britannica says, truth is the aim of belief. Falsity is a fault. People need the truth about the world in order to thrive. Truth is important. Believing what is not true is apt to spoil people's plans and may even cost them their lives. Telling what is not true may result in legal and social penalties. Conversely, a dedicated pursuit of truth characterizes, according to the Britannica, a good scientist a good historian, and the good detective. 
very interesting and very pointed today with all the fact-checking we have going on and all the people promoting or, or proclaiming this or that or the other. And we are just loaded with a mass of information coming at us all the time. And the problem with knowing truth for sinful human beings is that we are very limited by what our senses can actually perceive. We think far higher than we ought about our perceptions. When I watch something happen, I'm sure of what I've seen. And how many times have you seen something and then saw it later and found out it wasn't exactly like you remember? But I, I mean, I, I got a pretty good memory. I should remember. I remember not too long ago, I was in the car wash and I was behind another car a brand new car, as a matter of fact. And I had my old car with a, with a brush guard on the front that could hit anything, and I was okay with it. But I was sitting there reading something as I was going through the car wash, and all of a sudden, my car lunged forward and hit the car in front of me. I'm like, what's the deal? I'm just reading something. I think I might have been reading the church bulletin. It was a Monday morning. It was on my page. What's the deal? I'm positive. I got out. The manager's talking to me. Of course, my sons all work there, so I have to be calm. I said, and because I'm a Christian, and I said, you know, I didn't do anything. I was just sitting there. There's nothing I did that made this thing. It's your machine must have done this. And I was convinced. I was positive. I knew that had to be the case. And he looked at me real calm. He goes, well, we have a video of it. And as we're looking at the video, I'm watching the video, and my car lunged forward. There's no doubt. Guess what happened? So as I was moving somewhere in there, I probably, I don't know what I did. I think I pulled probably the mask off of something. I don't know. And I hit the, I hit, as I thought about it again, I remember making that movement, and I hit it, and it lunged forward. Now, thankfully, it didn't leave a mark on the guy's car. Brand new, it had like 10 miles on it, the car that I hit. I felt terrible. I was sure with my senses that that's what happened. So just because you can see it and observe it, and just because we can do an experiment or this or that or the other thing, does not mean that we're able to rightly remember everything perfectly or that we can interpret what we see exactly as it actually happens. We are very limited in actuality. I don't mean we shouldn't pursue these things, but just with humility, recognize our senses are very skewed, radically impacted by the fall. So our independent ability to explore truth, we have to recognize as compromise for sure. We need help with whatever we see to put it in its proper place, whatever it is. It's interesting, when Paul writes to the Romans, he gives this great classic defense of the Christian faith, and he begins by noting the fact that yes, in creation, there's plenty enough for us to see that there is a God and hold us accountable to God. But the problem is it doesn't give us any information on how to know God or be right with God because of our sin. So God has to give us special revelation. He has to reveal truth to us so that we might know. This is the, the glory of Christ himself because the word of God is ultimately the testimony of Jesus. And everything in the scripture points to Christ. We can count on all of it because it points to Christ, who's the resurrected one. This is kind of the beginning of Paul's argument in Romans, and he's assuming, when he uses this word truth, he's assuming God's revealed truth. What God has told us is actually reliable, that we can know for sure. We won't know everything there is to know. We can't discover everything there is to know. But the essential truth God gives us through the person of Christ and his word which is the witness, the Holy Spirit-guided witness of Christ. For Paul, when he speaks of truth, he's speaking of seeing through the lens of Christ and Scripture. People need the truth about the world in order to thrive. Truth is essential for us. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And I will say further, and I think you probably recognize this, the very idea of truth as an absolute 
as a constant has never been less popular, it seems. Uh, for many people, truths become a subject for philosophical debate or a concept that changes as the world changes. It's a populist notion. If the majority thinks this some way, this is what we should do, this is what is right and true. Or at least for now it is. The idea of absolute truth, however, is inseparable from the life of Christ and the Scriptures. Jesus defines himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus talks about the Word of God very specifically. Sanctify them by your Word. Your Word is truth, he prays to God in John 17. So in a world that drifts without absolutes, these words that Paul speaks to Christians couldn't be more important, at least for our lifetime. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. We need to know what this means. You know, Francis Schaeffer lived his life uh, teaching on the importance of knowing truth. And he, he made some profound statements over the course of his life in his books and his writings. But he gave a lecture in 1981 at Notre Dame, and he said a phrase that became popular with him. He said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T, truth about total reality not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity, Schaefer went on, is truth concerning total reality. And the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living it in the light of that truth. He recognized how foundational Scripture was and what it demonstrated for us and it provides all the principles we need for navigating the whole of life. I don't mean to say, and he didn't mean to say, that it answers everything there is to answer but it gives us the, the guide points that are most essential. And most importantly is that we have been created by God. He's the creator. We are estranged from him because we are sinners. And the only way to have peace with him again, to have relationship with him again, to be reconciled to him again, is to believe on Christ, who has become the second Adam. He has now undone what the first Adam did in his person, and as we rest in him, we now have relationship with God. Everything flows from this. That's the essence of truth, but there's more to it in that the Word of God and all that it speaks to is true because it's pointing ultimately to Christ. In the Proverbs, at least two times it says something like this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In the first chapter and the ninth chapter, one of the Psalms says the same thing. Respect for the Lord, knowing God, believing on God, trusting that God is true, that He exists. This is the beginning of knowledge. That's where you start to learn truth once you know God. It doesn't mean that someone who doesn't believe in God can't have parts of what they believe as true, but it does not tie together and it can become very unruly. If the belt of truth is not around your armor and you start to run, things will flap all over and they'll run. The, the breastplate can fall off or actually hinder you from using your sword because you, you'd have to carry your sword. It just falls apart from there. So a little bit of truth isn't, isn't always helpful. The belt of truth Christ and his word primarily in the mind of Paul as he's declaring this to the Ephesians. How do we know this for sure? Well, earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what, Jesus, or what Paul says. In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I hope you remember back to Ephesians 1 almost a year ago when we were outside. We started with the, that first foundation. You heard the word of truth, brothers and sisters, Christians, and you believed it. What is it? The truth is the gospel of your salvation. It's not just the simple message of, yes, trust in Jesus and be saved. It's all that supports that work that Christ did. 
the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we know at the very base level when Paul speaks of the belt of truth, he's talking about the objective truth of Christ, in salvation in Christ, in life in Christ. We know that's true at the very basic level. In in Ephesians 5, 8 and 9, though, he says something more about truth. It's not just objective facts or just doctrine. There's something more. It's what you do in light of that doctrine. And that's what Ephesians 5 alludes to in other portions as well. Paul said, for at one time you were darkness. You couldn't see the truth because you're darkness. But now you are light in the Lord because light is shining. You can see what's true. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So it's knowing the truth objectively, right and wrong, what the scripture lays out as such. It's also manifesting truthfulness in what you speak, how you act, how you think about yourself, how you assess yourself. We're sincere, we're true, because we have this handle on what the gospel is, it allows us to be sincere through and through, to have integrity through and through. We know our sins are forgiven, so now we can actually handle the fact of our sinfulness and truthfulness. The belt of truth, central to everything, it starts right there. All the rest of the armor depends upon it. That's what I think we'll find very clearly. Let's look at these two different features of truth in the remaining two points. First, it's important for us regarding objective truth, what is true and how to know it. It's to know it and to apply it as our abiding endeavor. So we come each Lord's Day, open up the Word. What does the Lord say? How should we live this out? We come together in our home fellowship groups. That's the questions. You notice the the whole questions are how to apply what we just heard preached and thought about and mulled over. That's, that's the endeavor of our individual and co- communal lives. What does God's word say? How do we live it out? How do we live it out in light of the, the day and age we live? Those are the, the nice discussions we can have with one another. Because the word is timeless, but the application changes with the ages. And so that's what you've constantly got to discuss. How do we follow what God says? This is really hard in the day and age we live, whatever the subject may be. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is true? then what to do? That's the question. Here are a few other sections of Ephesians. Listen to this where Paul speaks in in this light. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So the first base level aspect of truth that Paul's calling us and our attention to is that which he's been speaking of all through Ephesians. The truth is in Jesus. Just like Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, Jesus says to the original, the original hearers of that statement, then you've known the Father. So to know Christ is to know God and to know truth. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is actually liberating because we're inundated with lies, and the lies are constricting. When the truth is shown for what it is, the truth, it's liberating. Now, I don't mean that it'll go well with you necessarily in the given day and age you may live, but it's liberating to know it's the truth. Mankind isn't 
where you get authority or where you get wisdom or where you get smarts even for that matter. The mob populist mentality never works well in the end. So we go to the word for the truth. And even if it's costly, it's liberating. It sets you free to know what the truth is. And the truth is found in Christ ultimately and first and foremost. And the problem for each of us is we are leaky when it comes to truth coming in. Even as believers, we have to continually have an, an ingestion of truth. You've got to constantly have truth in our, ears, in our ears and through our eyes and in our speech because it's so quick that we forget. It takes so little time for us to forget the things we hear. And we have this huge, huge consuming of information. It's just on a scale I'm like, I don't think any other age. I mean, at my phone, there's almost nothing that happens that I can't immediately go to my phone and find out information. Whether it's truth or not, I'm not saying, but information. Just yesterday, I heard one of my favorite boxers of all time died, and I forgot some of his facts. So I just looked him up on Google. Boom, I know everything down to what, he's doing with his, what he was doing with his family right before he died. I mean, you just name the thing. Any piece of information, you can Google it up in Wikipedia will tell you what you, they want to tell you. The problem with all of this is, and I know we recognize this and we'll say, well, we can't trust everything, but if all we're doing is constantly eating that without offsetting in preparation with God's word, it's dangerous. If you think that your Facebook feed and all your friends' confirmation-biased approaches to YouTube clips and other things is the way you discern truth, now, I know you don't think that. I'm just saying as a challenge to us, just make sure that we're so consuming truth that whatever it is we see, whether it be a Twitter feed or whether it be on cable news, whatever the case may be, that it, whether it's the preacher talking, me speaking right now, that you can sift it through what you have been developing as the truth of God in your heart as you meditate upon it. Hide your, heart, your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. It's basic, but it couldn't be more important and essential at the centerpiece. I think it's missed oftentimes. We run into the battle with our breastplate and our sword and our shield, but we don't understand why it's flopping all over the place because we don't have the belt tight. We're not well grounded. We think we are, but we're not. I can't emphasize enough this truth or this reality about truth and how we have a hard time retaining it as as people this side of the fall. The best way I can describe this, an illustration I like to use to describe how we're so leaky about the truth, is uh, the internal, internal combustion engine. It's uh, one of the greatest gifts that God has ever allowed for. And I, I like doing work on my cars, even though uh, some cases it would be easier to take it to Valvoline, but I got a lot of old cars too, and so it's enjoyable to get to know my car on an intimate basis by changing the oil on a regular basis. And my mom, for the longest time, would take her car to where she had taken it before when she lived in Olathe. And I told her a couple years ago, I said, Mom, let me uh, change the oil in your car. I don't mind at all. I enjoy doing it. She said, that's fine. So I get under her car, and it's a good make and model, at least as far as I was concerned, and, and the record shows. But I'm not kidding you. Before I got under, I'd take out the, the dipstick, and there is like no oil on it zero oil. So I want you to think of oil as being truth in an engine that has to be in the engine for it to work. But here's the problem with certain models and cars as they get older. Various parts start to fail and ultimately either it leaks out the bottom because the seals kind of go and it starts dripping in your driveway and you know it, or it starts to burn it up. 
It burns it up when the, it could anything from the valve stems to the, the rods being just the wrong length, like in this model. And then the rings that go around the pistons, if oil comes up from underneath and goes around to the top where the gasoline burns off, then it starts to burn the oil. Well, it turns out she just got in the oil changed 3,000 miles before, and there's no oil in the car, at least not the dip, by the dipstick. So I drain it and a little bit comes out. Who knows how long she'd been driving with no oil? When cars get old, they just, they either burn it up or they leak it, but they can't hold it anymore. Listen, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but that's kind of how we are. We are not pristine vehicles still in warranty. Warranty's up on us. What do you do when this happens? Well, it just so happens I have a lot of experience with this. In fact, every car I ever bought for the first 15 years of my life burned oil like crazy or draped, dripped oil everywhere. And I didn't even know there was cars that didn't do this. And so I remember telling my dad, the first car I bought, it was a 79 Volkswagen Rabbit that I literally had to put, I know this is for the gearheads who will like this, the rest of you, you need to know more about this, but there was a hose that goes to the top of the intake. I put a T-valve uh, in it and then drain the oil that kept going up into the air filter in it and then I dump it back into the, into the crankcase. That's how much oil it was spewing all the time. So I didn't know vehicles didn't always have to put oil in it. And so my answer always is, well, it's burning oil. No trouble. Just every week or two, just open it up and put more oil in. That's what you need to do. If you don't, it will seize. It will, and it'll blow up and it will no longer work and it's super expensive then. But if you keep putting oil in, it'll go for a long time, a long time. We have to keep putting oil. We have to keep putting truth in ourselves. It, we are leaky. We're burning it up. We're not able to hold it at capacity any longer. That's just the reality for us. And so we need a constant ingestion of truth. Oil has to keep being poured into us. And here's what's even worse. What if some well-meaning person got the wrong fluid off the shelf and instead put transmission fluid in the crankcase? It's going to blow up a lot faster. I think a lot of us are just putting too much other stuff. We've got to have truth in there, not untruth. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Don't drive another mile without making sure you have adequate oil. Who is God? What does he want from me? What is my relationship with him? Where do you get your ideas about God? So as a church, our approach should be at least on the corporate level. God's called us to gather and perfect the saints. That's what the church corporate's called to do. So this includes the preaching of the word. This includes the teaching of the word. This includes Bible study, teaching people to do Bible studies, to equip people to know and discern the truth, which is the scriptures first and foremost. To have fellowship with one another, to discuss God's truth. And these are barely enough. These things have to happen in the home as well. The church equips individuals and homes to carry this out and discuss this. We even have a school that we started for this purpose, to see the world through the lens of the word. You know, one of the great inspirational scenes of all history that really rests on this picture of the belt of truth. In fact, I know it's even in the mind of the man who said this stuff because he wrote so much about it. Martin Luther, when he stood on trial for all his critiques of the Roman church, and the critiques were because the Roman church had gotten so far afield from what the scripture said that he was trying to call them back to it. And of course, they didn't buy that. They opted for the authority of man and man's hierarchy and interpretation over the word. And so he stood there at trial maybe a cost of his life, and said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything 
For to go against conscience is neither right or safe. God help me. In the famous statement, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. That is directly related to the spirit of what Paul says. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, not only is Paul speaking of putting on the belt of truth in the sense of objective truth, of the person of Christ in the word, but he's also referring to being truthful. As a result of that objective truth, we can then, as a fruit, be fruitful. And that's another way in which we conduct ourselves that helps us stand against evil. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now we're talking about being truth speakers, being agents of truth, having integrity, honesty, sincerity, straightforwardness. Because to be deceitful is from the devil. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning as the word declares him. Now we're talking about another feature of truth the one that's spoken of in Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So now it's talking about relating with the truth, interacting with the truth, speaking the truth. In Ephesians 4, later in the chapter, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let me tell you where truthfulness is absolutely the most important. I know it's important to call out falsehood, yes. But sometimes we get on a mission trying to notice everything that's false out there and make statements against it or stand up and confront this or call out that person or whatever. And certainly there's a, a role or part of what we do as the church and as Christians that involves that. But I would submit to you that if we would see the most important feature of truthfulness in our actions, how we handle confronting falsehood will be greatly improved and it'll be more effective. How are we to view truthfulness in that light. Well, the psalmist in two occasions gives it very clearly. In Psalm 32, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all, my, all the day long. When I kept my sins to myself, I was groaning under the pain of those sins, the, the burden of knowing I was a sinner. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then what does the psalmist say? What we saw in the, in the assurance of pardon today. The psalmist says he tried that, being dishonest with God, with not being honest about sin. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I mean, that just feels relieving to say that. And then it says, very simply, in verse 5 of Psalm 32, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's no better truthfulness. This is who I am, Lord. I know I am, but I know I'm in Christ. This is why we can confess our sins and receive an assurance of pardon. That should be like every day. 
because it's always true for us. When we have that kind of truthfulness, now the way we approach falsehood is with a greater humility. Yes, we call it out, but the humility we have now as we address other things is not as if to say, the world, you're doing so badly at this, and we're not. No, it's, it's from a sense of the pain that that thing causes and a desire to see people relieved of that burden that they may not even know they bear. The psalmist doesn't indicate necessarily that he recognized fully what was making him so down, but the Spirit of God compels him to acknowledge his sin to the Lord. In fact, David famously says in Psalm 51, and listen to this portion of Psalm 51 in the same light of truthfulness. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The honesty that the psalmist is speaking with about himself, the truthfulness, the belt of truth includes being truthful about who we are. Now, it's anchored in the objective truth of Christ, so we can do this. But how liberating it is to be open before the Lord, to know that our salvation is of God, and our forgiveness is always dependent on Christ. We are not even close to perfect people. We're barely sanctified, if we're honest. And when we come from that place of humility, how we approach our address of falsehood will come off different, and I would argue more effective. I didn't say you don't address it, but it will come off from a place of humbleness, not we are holier than you. This is the belt of truth in totality. And it says further when David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Psalm 51 is the result of God's working in David to say the truth about his situation. And God creates in him a clean heart. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. This has to do with being honest before God about our sin as a starting point. Kent Hughes, a pastor who wrote on this passage, was talking about how important it is that we recognize this belt is central to everything else. He said, without cinching ourselves tightly with the truth of Scripture, the other weapons will clatter in disarray. And don't forget... This is not our armor. This is proven armor. This is reliable armor. You know it works. It's the armor of Christ himself. In the book of Isaiah, there are several prophecies of Jesus. One of the early ones that doesn't get addressed as much is in Isaiah 11. At least the first few verses do where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We recognize this as messianic. This points to Christ. This is 700 years before Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, Isaiah says. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is all talking to Christ and who is Jesus and our Savior and the one who's objectively true, the piece of armor that we recognize as the, the, giver, of the, the giver of the armor, not just the piece of the armor. But then it says in Isaiah 11.5, righteousness shall be his belt on his waist and truth the belt of his loins. I told you it's Jesus' armor. It's Jesus' armor that we're wearing. So in that light, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for the power of your word, for its clarity and even its simplicity.
yet we recognize we are leaky when it comes to the truth and we are in need of constant reminders and encouragements. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would that this would be provided in what we've read and as we contemplate it, meditate upon it this week and maybe discuss together as small groups later. Whatever uh, the case may be for each individual, I pray that you would prompt them by your word and by your spirit to continually read and to uh, study your word, to consider their own actions, our own actions, as we manifest the fruits of Jesus in our life. Lord, most of all, we do honestly desire to see you glorified and we know that you've given us this armor so that we might stand. And in so standing, uh, the glory would be yours. It would be clearly your doing. It'd be the power of your might, your mighty strength. And we thank you for, for this in Christ. Amen. Let's together turn in response to our hymnals, number 600. We'll stand up and we will sing verse 1 and verse 2 of He Leadeth Me, O Blessed Thought, as the elders and ushers come to prepare the table. That's hymn 600. <laughs>